So what is Palm Sunday? Um, for some of you guys who uh, didn't grow up in the church and may not know what that is, um, it's the time when Jesus enters into Jerusalem during the Passover time, and it starts the week of events um, that lead to his suffering and his death. I mean, I want to encourage us today to really enter into the story, um, and not just today, but to enter into that story for this whole week. Um, this is called Holy Week, um, or also Passion Week. Um, passion, um, not kind of like, woohoo, I really love the Blazers, um, but more passion in terms of the word suffering. Um, so if you will, I'm going to read um, our, our sermon passage today. And if you are um, willing and able, uh, you're invited to stand with me as we read God's word. From Matthew 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say to them that the Lord needs them and he'll send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road, the crowds that went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. The reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Have you guys ever labeled someone or some people in a certain way that you hoped would, would fulfill your stereotypes? Anyone do this? I've been humbled more than once. And as you guessed it, it was with Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> so back in the 90s, Matthew wasn't a respectable star. He was known mostly from Dazed and Confused, um, which was mostly about getting high. Um, and living in Austin, Texas is where Matthew was. Um, he had at that time been caught um, drumming his bongos naked in his front yard. He was obnoxiously that guy at every single UT football game on the field with this iconic UT shirt where he cut out the, um, the arms. Um, and I don't think it was like that hot. I think it was to like show off his body. Um, and, and I believe that I met so many people, so many friends who said that they had been hit on 
by him at some bar or another um, at that time. The facts and experiences I had backed up my prejudices against Matthew McConaughey. He was pretentious, he was starved for attention, he was just all about girls and drugs and UT football. And then I met him in person. I was at a public golf course hitting um, balls very badly at a driving range. I used to um, take girls that I mentored um, to the driving range. I don't know why. It was close to my house. Um, and, and we go there, and we go up, and, um, and it was pretty affordable, and so we were like, okay, here we go. And the guy goes, Matthew McConaughey's on the driving range. And I'm like, what is this dude, what is this like celebrity star doing at the public golf course, like $5 a bucket, right? And quickly, in my mind, um, I jumped to all my stereotypes of what he's like. My friend says, let's go talk to him. Let's go share the gospel with him. <laughs> I was determined to not enable this man's ego. And I was not going to fall into starstruckness. But my labels jumped up. He's probably high. Look at him on his lawn chair. He brought his own lawn chair. Gosh, man, he must be having a hard week. He just really needed that public affirmation that he would come to this dinky little driving range. I remember also that I was incredibly aware of what I was wearing. <laughs> I had these really big jeans that were not incredibly flattering. And I also recognized that my friend um, was, was also an incredible tomboy. We were not red carpet material. So I ignored him. I intentionally ignored him. Um, and as we're sitting there, at my horrible golfing, um, I broke all of my tees pretty, pretty quickly. And we were so close. I mean, we were literally like where that stool is, like that close to him, that he overheard our conversation. And he comes over to me so kindly, and he says, would you like my tees? <laughs> I said, yeah, thanks. <laughs> and then, in such a generous and kind way, he said, and if you need more, you can have as many as you want. He was unpretentious, he was generous, he was kind. Um, and I think that we, much like this crowd in our text today, have certain expectations of certain people that we're hoping that they'll fulfill. Um, our story begins, this, this triumphal entry, our Holy Week story, um, is, begins with a history and a hope, a hosanna and a humility. They had this expectation of who Jesus was going to be like, and they were very disappointed. They thought he was going to be this mighty, militant, revolutionary celebrity. But instead, he was meek, humble, and radically loving. 
Now, I, don't, I can't speak to Matthew McConaughey. I mean, that, this was like before he like did Lincoln car commercials. I mean, this was a long time ago. So I don't, I can't, I'm not saying anything about Matthew McConaughey. Um, but the point is, is that we come with these expectations and labels um, to people. Um, at this time in this history, it's Passover. Uh, the pilgrims are coming from everywhere to Jerusalem to offer their sacrifices. There are tons of people, um, and there are tons of lambs, and there are also tons of protests against the empire. This is a picture of the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem um, to just give you a visual of what Passover was like at that time. The history is, is that Matthew, not McConaughey, the gospel writer, um, <laughs> the gospel writer Matthew knew his audience and that his audience could recall the brutal Jewish um, Roman wars. And that empire and kingdom were experiences and images that were only associated with violence and conquest and power. In the Great Revolt, 1.3 million people were killed. Almost 100,000 people were enslaved. The Roman Empire won and Caesar Augustus was in power. He was originally born named Octavius, but when he switched his name to Augustus, it was because they thought he was trying to become like a god. Um, they thought that he was divine. And so in order to kind of puff up his divineness, um, there was kind of this like imperial cultness of the time. They made statues and buildings and they put his faces on coins. They even named him and said, Caesar is the son of God. He's the savior. Um, he would use this word Pax Romana, um, that there's peace in Rome and I'm the one who brought peace and justice, and saved all of you. While he said this, there were crosses everywhere of people being tortured and killed. Pax Romana. He was seen as a savior, and whenever his great deeds were mentioned, they were called Uli Galeon, good news, the gospel. Caesar Augustus, son of God, when he did something good, it is good news. It is gospel. Today in North Korea, we have something similar to that, where the dictator in three generations were seen as God, and if you were not bowed down to them, that your life could be taken. It is not uncommon today. The political propaganda was to uplift this imperial theology. They built great campaigns that required taxing from Galilee, Samaria, and Judea very greatly, leaving the majority in poverty because they were not just paying taxes to the empire, but they also were having to pay tithes to the temple, which left them in even greater poverty. 
Jesus was proclaiming during this time a new kind of empire, a new kind of kingdom. And throughout his public ministry, we see Jesus counterculturally addressing this injustice, poverty, hunger, and debt. So during this time, there was, it was common that people were, were doing lots of revolts, um, trying to overtake the empire. Um, and the Messianic claim during this time was to challenge the ruling class to relinquish its power. And when you did this, it would lead to arrest and to execution. And during Passover, it was even heightened more. And there was so much fear for the violence um, of, of revolt around this time, uh, the governor would increase its security. So this is kind of the history that we're going into, into this um, passage. And so what do you think that the people are hoping for? What do you think that they're longing for? Their hope is for political, military, social, economic, ethnic, religious freedom. They want this liberation. They want something different. And so when they shout, Hosanna, which is the translation for please save us, God, there's something deep that's happening um, within that context. It is interesting. It doesn't just say save me. Because, because it was not just individually, it was about the whole system that was happening. The structures. Save us. Hosanna to son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. These Hallel Psalms in Psalm 118 were used frequently, were used often during Passover. And this word son of David was used in the Messianic prophecy of a promised king. It's like, it's like they were yelling, God save the king, the true king. In the Greco-Roman king, king's triumphal entry, when they came in, it was to conquer a city. You could see where their hopes were expecting and hoping that this King Jesus would come in a certain way. When they had the palm branches, it was an allusion to the Maccabean triumphs. You would see pictures of that, both in Jewish and Greco-Roman texts, for military triumphs, the palm branches. And the garments were also royal acclamation for a king. What are we hoping for? What are we, what are we screaming? Save us, Hosanna. When we sing Hosanna today, instead of saying Hosanna, I just kept singing, save us, save us, save us. And then I began to weep. We had a history, we have a hope but man, Jesus did not come as they expected. He came with a humility. The scripture says that the very large crowd wanted Jesus to be this warrior king, to, to be like a Genghis Kong and to overthrow all the oppression with force and might. The scripture says what the prophet Zechariah says, say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you. I love that it says you don't all come to the king. The king comes to you. This incarnation 
gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. This donkey's example was seen of, of humility and service. Um, it, was, it was also what, what kings rode only in times of peace, not war. What humility. It is so unlike our world. I, I googled up richest royal families of the world. <laughs> I was like, I want to see what this looks like. What, what are the kings of our world look like? Um, and so Saudi Arabia has um, the richest royal family of the world. Um, they have $1.7 trillion. I kind of wanted to make a Dr. Evil. Trillion dollars. The wealthiest of them all is Prince Alawid. His net worth is 18.7 oh, billion dollars. I love that. I think this is on an airplane, and I think his gold chair says kingdom above it. Jesus does not come in like our world expects him to. This is this man's car. <laughs> I kid you not. When, when, we, when Pastor Lynette did that, what would you think that a, a warrior king would come out on? Wouldn't it be like this big horse, this big steed, this mighty triumph? You would expect that a king would have a golden car like this, right? But donkeys were, were seen as humble, meek servants. It was used in time of peace, um, but they, they weren't nothing. Um, you had to have some fair amount of money. A donkey was about two months' wages. Um, and so I, I calculated my um, income, about what two months' wages is, um, based on just me and me alone. Um, and instead of, it's like, well, basically, and then I looked up how much that would be, which was like, like $7,000, something like that. And then I looked up what kind of car I could get for $7,000. <laughs> Is it 19, a 2006 Honda Civic? <laughs> so in comes the mightiest king, and you think that it's going to be in this gold fancy car. But no, Jesus is like, don't get me the gold car. Get me the 2006 Honda Civic. <laughs> it's like saying, I'm going to go into a war, and you're thinking, go get the tanks. And... And your commander, the king, says, no, go get me a push scooter. Let's go, guys. It doesn't make sense that this powerful messianic, the one that they've been waiting for from the time of the prophets, is coming in on a Honda Civic. He's coming in on a donkey. They thought it would be a horse. But it was but it was not so much. When Jesus entered the city, the whole city stirred. I love that word. 
They stirred. And they said, who is this? Who is this person? Who's this person that we're all so excited about? Who is this unknown country person? Well, at least he's from our country. At least he's not a foreigner. When Jesus was born, the scripture says that Jerusalem was troubled by Jesus' birth. Here, it's a stronger word. The actual translation is that Jerusalem was quaked. They were quaked by Jesus. And the crowds answer this question. They say, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, there was, like, definitely divisions at that time, but the biggest division was Jerusalem-Galilee, was the urban and the rural. Because what, really? A place so unlikely, would greatness really come from that? How could anything good come from that place? Recently, um, a lot of... Uh, my friends were t- talking about someone who recently passed away, uh, Nisby Hustle. Anyone? No. Okay, so not everybody knows who that is. And so I was like, I don't know who Nisby Hustle is. I'm going to check this out. He's a rapper. Um, I didn't listen to any of his rhymes. Um, but I'm like, what's the hype? What's the hype about Nipsey Hustle who died? Nipsey was from Crenshaw, from L.A., and, and, and I began to ask this question, who is this person? Who is this person that everyone's excited about? Just like the crowd was. Well, it turns out, unlike expectation, if you just looked at him on the street, and this is a very small print, Nipsey Hussle, the big thing was, you would think that a man from Crenshaw, like nothing would come good out of this community. He was a huge philanthropist, someone who constantly gave back into the community. Sorry, it's so, it's so small, but he gave thousands of dollars to entertainment, to STEM. To t- he even took a, a whole bowling alley that was devastated from the LA riots and rebuilt it. He went back to old apartment buildings and communities, and he revitalizes them. He gave back into this community. And there's this expectation that we have these labels again, that we think, oh, this person's going to be like this. And it just blows our expectations. And I think that this is kind of what was happening, is that they're like, what? Who is this Jesus? What? He's from Galilee? Nothing good can come out of that. They had a history of suffering that bubbled up into a hope that they yelled, Hosanna, save us. But this king revolutionary did not respond the way they expected. Nipsey Hussle did not fill out the rolling 60 crip gangster Crenshaw rapper stereotype. And Jesus doesn't either. Jesus comes from a hood that's looked down upon. And he comes as our savior, king, messiah, not with tanks and weapons and hate and violence, but with humility. Humility. 
and radical love. This morning, my friend Deb Matson, she serves as the missionary personnel care for Serve Globally. She just got back from Kenya, um, seeing the Chamberlains and, and Becky. And she wrote this this morning about Palm Sunday. Create your enemy, then hate them. Then go along with radical ideas. With Native American genocide, with slavery, with lynching, with the KKK, with the Holocaust, with xenophobia, with homophobia, with Pol Pot, with the Chinese internment, with police brutality, with police bashing, with the Palestinian checkpoints, with anti-Semitism, with demonizing conservatives and demonizing liberals, with the endless propaganda, with endless wars, with justification for fear, with 9-11, with Islamophobia, with toxic words that kill, with mind-blowing indifference said Jesus never, said Jesus never. He came riding in on a donkey when all humility broke loose. With radical love for his enemies, with radical love for his neighbor, with radical welcome for the stranger, with radical love for the world, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this Hosanna, the same crowd who's saying, oh, you're going to be my guy. You're going to be that politician that's going to make all the world right for me. Is the same crowd that came later that week and said, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. If our story begins with history, hope, Hosanna, and humility, our story ends with suffering, solidarity, and sacrifice. Jesus' wild inclusion, radical love, fierce humility, revolutionary resistance by practicing solidarity with the lowest of the low got him killed. On Tuesday at staff meeting, Pastor Mark invited us to walk the Stations of the Cross, um, both within the building or outside of the building, which I really want to encourage everyone to do at some point this week. What stood out to me when I walked were two things. I began looking at this one, where Jesus says, it says, Jesus is betrayed, and in the tiny print that you can't see underneath, it says, do what you need to, go do what you need to do, friend. As she, he talks to, um, to J- Judas, who's about to uh, betray him. Do what you came for, friend. This mighty Messiah King who was supposed to mightily save everyone from crucifixion, the crucifixion era of the Roman Empire, was supposed to uprise and and resist this unjust empire that was crucifying people. He was supposed to do it in spite of the cross, not through the cross. That is not what we expected. Oh, there it is. Jesus is mocked. And Jesus dies. He doesn't die anyway. He dies through a cross. 
New York Times author Stephen Mansfeld said this. He described the crucifixion in an article as an act of state terror. By the time crucifixion was a staple of the Roman Empire, its justice system had been employed strangling, stoning, burning, and even boiling people in oil. The head of the physiological department of King's College said this, that crucifixion was not just putting people to death. It was a method of torture. It was particularly cruel and an unusual form of disposing people. Jesus died through a method of torture of the cross. We can't jump from Hosanna's to he has risen without sitting in the suffering of crucify him. Alan Mitzo Wakabashi wrote a book called Kingdom Come, and he says this. When people were nailed to a cross, it meant that their attempts to fight for the kingdom had ended in failure. This was not the way of the kingdom, was through a cross. For Jesus' followers, every ounce of hope and promise died with Jesus upon the cross. And if anything... The kingdom should come in spite of the cross, not through the cross. The advancing of a kingdom was going to come through power and might, not giving up your life. What got me is I started to walk the stations. As we see what's beautiful, as you, if you step back into um, the parking lot and you actually look at all of them, they're all pic different pictures of crosses. Um, Jesus, Jesus is betrayed. And he says, do what you came for, friend. And under, underneath the scripture under Jesus died, is greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. The love just got a little bigger and a little bit more radical. He called Judas his betrayer, friend, and then laid his life down for his friends, for his enemies, for the ones that were mocking and insulting and rejecting and hating him. God's love is not what we expect. The discipleship of Jesus, to follow this Jesus that says, now, come follow me. <laughs> A Jesus who is definitely resurrected, and there is beautiful celebration in that that we will do next week. But we have to understand that when Jesus says, follow me, that there is, a, there is a path of suffering. There is a path of persecution that may happen. 
First Peter says that if you want to live a godly life, you will be persecuted for my name. Jesus doesn't come into the world like we expected as he comes to a poor pregnant teen. Jesus doesn't come into our hopes for revolution, for empire, like we would hope for a, a Messiah. He comes on a donkey. Jesus doesn't come to bring a new kingdom like we want it to when he's tortured on a cross. Jesus empties his privilege, his power, his position. Philippians says it's so great that Jesus, who being the very nature of God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage, for his own privilege, for his own power. Rather, he made himself nothing. He emptied himself, taking the very nature of a servant, of a slave, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a human. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. God meets our hate and sin with love and mercy. We shouldn't expect that this radically countercultural Jesus will invite us to come and follow him and that we would be exempt to have to live with humility and suffering as well. Mark Charles is a Native American theologian. He recently preached at um, Trinity Evangelical Seminary in Chicago. Um, and I listened to his sermon, and I, it's kind of been drumming in the back of my head. He talks about manifest destiny and the doctrine of discovery, but he also talks about the Old Testament theology of promised land um, exceptionality. Um, that, that it was kind of this theology that began to happen, that they believed that if I get the promised land um, by any means necessary, then it's a, it's a showing of my own spirituality, my own blessedness, that God has blessed me if I can gain and conquest um, this land. And so he shares that in America that that is a little bit of our history, or a big part of our history, um, that when people came um, to discover, already discovered America, um, that when they, they came upon the indigenous people, there was a little bit of that promised land theology that, that my prosperity of gaining land for myself um, will be a mark of my blessedness of God. Um, and there was genocide. Um, but he challenges us with this, that if we look and read the scriptures in the life of Jesus, that discipleship is not about our prosperity here on earth. Our discipleship should be marked with suffering and a downward mobility, not an upward one. Those who were blessed were woed, and those who were woed were blessed by Jesus. It's all upside down and backwards. 
It's not how we expect it. And so we come into this Passion Week, this Passion Sunday, once again confessing and repenting and lamenting of how we've kind of got it backwards. I feel like I've had to do that throughout all of Lent. Um, And to come to the cross with that humility and that willingness to say, yes, Jesus, I will follow you. I'm counting this cost. I will deny myself. I will pick up my cross and I'll follow you. And following you might mean being mocked, taken advantage of, and even crucified. But I will do it because I know there's resurrection. I know that there's power. I know that there's restoration. I know that there is good, real good news. That Caesar is not the son of God, but it is Jesus. And Jesus is powerful and loving and good. And this kingdom will make all that's broken right again. And man, it's worth it. It's worth my whole life, Jesus. So let's follow him. Being buried in his death and risen again. I wanted to invite um, Stephanie Beslin to come up. I had asked her to do some spoken word on Palm Sunday. They relieved the palms of their branches. As the people's palms grasped and then brandished those leafy emblems of both festival and rebellion. These were a people who felt as though they had already spent their second, third, and last chances on zealots, men like Barabbas, and that now famous Maccabean. But this Jesus, This new champion was riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. As Zechariah had envisioned him, this king was coming to daughter Zion to take the wicked Roman chariots away from Ephraim. Surely this Jesus was the one to bring God's people salvation. Surely he was the one pictured all across the people's hopeful panorama, everyone the prophets talked about. So they shouted, save us, please. They cried, Hosanna, Hosanna. And this Jesus would answer yes to their cry of save us, save us. But not in the way they expected, not by the violent overthrow predicted by their palmy political propaganda. For the humility of that donkey was nothing compared to the way he would answer their shouts of Hosanna. For the path on which he rode took him not to a throne, but to a court, not for a place fit for a heavenly king, but to the feet of an earthly lord. It was there before another crowd in the hands of Pilate 
whom God endowed with the power to answer the shouts, rising loud, demanding crucifixion for this man who was so recently avowed as Hosanna by those who had laid down a pathway of both palm branch and personal shroud. It was there that he would show how he would answer both crowds. Both the Hosanna save us cry and the incessant crucify. For what was missed by each tribe, by those who cried out their Hosanna boast, and those who cried that this man should be nailed upon two posts, is that Jesus would say no to neither request. Instead, Jesus would say yes to both. In fact, he would accomplish salvation by such infliction. He would be Hosanna by undergoing crucifixion. He would say yes to cries of love and yes to cries of hate. And for us, it is good news that he answered this way. For we too cry, Hosanna. We too need to be saved but we also cry, crucify him. We also are filled with hate. We need to be rescued from our evil, but when goodness comes to us, we take what is good and by our evil, hang it on a cross. But this is how he saves us. This is how he loves us. He answered our cry of need and our cry of hate. With one final yes poured out as he cried so that the sin that put him on the cross, he paid for as he died. And the salvation for which we asked, by his yes, he supplied. So come lay down your branches and come lift up your palms. For the king of our salvation said yes to the night of death so he could raise the light of dawn.